We have been studying uh, this month, we've been going through the book of Matthew, chapters 1 and 2, talking about, of course, the Christmas story. And uh, last week, uh, during our Christmas Eve service, we talked about the wise men and, uh, and really the, the, uh, the principles there to worship the king. But today we're going to be looking at another aspect, really, of the Christmas story that is often overlooked and neglected. Um, but I think it's very, very important why it is in the text today. And I think it's an interesting way to finish out the year as well. As we look at Matthew chapter 2, we're going to be again reading verse 13. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt. And be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he had, uh, saw that the, he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth, and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time that he, which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, In Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which is spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Interesting passage of scripture. And again, it's a passage that we often uh, kind of just read through or overlook. But today we're going to be looking at a very important fact of the fugitive king. When we look at the story of Christmas, a lot of times when it's read or we even get around the table and, and maybe during this past uh, uh, Christmas, this past week, uh, you took time to read the Christmas stories of family. We did that in ours as well. But I think there's sometimes when we look at the Christmas season, the, the story of Christmas sometimes comes across as they lived happily ever after. That's kind of what we said. Oh, Jesus is born. The angels sing. The shepherds come. The wives bring their gifts. Have, have a Merry Christmas. They lived happily ever after. However, it's interesting seeing the turn of events that has taken place here in Matthew chapter 2 in the Christmas story. For sure, uh, Joseph and Mary, we see that, that they had a fear, a fear of a reckless king, Herod, and also an uncertainty about the future. In a way, we always face uh, uncertainty as we enter into a new year. Uh, 2023 was a, uh, an interesting year uh, on many fronts. It was a, a very blessed year. God has done some amazing things at, here at Victory Baptist. Uh, he's brought new people our way. We've seen souls saved. We, uh, we have definitely been blessed uh, as a church this year. We've also faced uh, some, some challenges. Uh, we've faced uh, uh, some folks who have, uh, who have passed away, have passed on. Uh, and uh, their, their uh, memories and faces still are dear to our hearts. Uh, we've had some folks, folks that have uh, moved on, uh, moved to different areas. 
Um, and so it's it's uh, it kind of bittersweet in a way. The Vinarchics just this week moved to Tampa, Florida, and uh, we're praying for them as they get settled there. And so uh, we, we miss people like, like them, obviously. But nonetheless, I pray that through this past year, you can see what has God done in your heart. Um, we face uncertainty. Again, we, we know what has happened in the past year, but now as we go into a new year, 2024, what exactly is our plan? People make New Year's resolutions. I heard, uh, I think there was a, a report, uh, I forget what, from what source, but it, I don't know. Does anyone, I won't, don't raise your hand, but it, do you make a New Year's resolution? Maybe about an activity, a diet, a plan, whatever it may be. Uh, it, it's interesting that only about 8% of people who make a New Year's resolution actually keep it. Only 8%. We're failing bad. <laughs> Uh, nonetheless, uh, what keeps us going? What keeps us going into the new year? I think a lot of things, the uncertainty and fears that come with a new year uh, can sometimes bring difficulties as well, just in that. But whatever the past year has held for you, the plans, hopes, dreams, and adventures are clouded by the unknown. Uh, here's an interesting saying that you maybe you've heard this before. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans for tomorrow. Isn't that true? You might, and it's good to make plans, obviously, but a lot of times God's ways, his plans are so different from what we have, have planned and what we've dreamed. When Mary and Joseph uh, had baby Jesus in their arms and uh, knowing the blessing, they, they heard the stories uh, and they, of course, heard from the angels that this child would be grow, to grow up to be the king of Israel. He would be the Messiah. Uh, he would be the savior of the world. He would save people from their sins. Uh we obviously, they obviously didn't know the ramifications of what would happen having that child there. But as we know from the story, God had God's plan and purpose was to redeem the world through this baby, this baby boy, Jesus the Messiah. So Mary and Joseph is interesting as they are facing some dilemmas. And we're going to kind of break through that here in a moment. Is this that they had to trust in the hand of the sovereign God? Mary and Joseph had to trust in the hand of the sovereign God. The pains and the trials that Mary and Joseph experienced were also told them by Simeon after the birth of Jesus. And in Luke chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but remember that when Jesus was eight year, days old, they took him to the temple to be circumcised. And remember, there was an aged man, Simeon, was there, and Anna the prophetess. Simeon comes, and he tells, that, tells Mary in particular, Yea, a sword shall pierce thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So they were going to face trials themselves. They're going to face um, uh, persecution, as we see this here in this, even in this text. And as we think about this, throughout the life of Christ, uh, and even as we look at the name of Christ that's being presented today, even, there's many who are like Herod the Great. They tried to frustrate the promises of God. God's plan that was given to Adam and Eve that a, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And that is, a, that is a promise that God made centuries ago. And here it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And by his death on the cross, our salvation is secured. We praise the Lord for sending his son, Jesus Christ. Absolutely. But along the way, Satan has done his, his utmost to try to frustrate and thwart the plan of God. However, despite the sin and trials of this world, God's plan and eternal purposes will not fail. God's plan of purpose will not fail. And that plan was fulfilled in Jesus 
the fugitive king. What do you mean by that? Why is why are we calling Jesus the fugitive king? Well, we see from this story here in um, in Matthew chapter two, this account, uh, and I want us to kind of look at one verse. Look with me in verse uh, thirteen. It says here, and when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, "Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt." The word "flee" there in the Greek "fugeo" is where we get the word "fugitive" from. Okay. And so in a sense, Jesus became a fugitive. He was a king who was just given gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And all of a sudden, they are having to skedaddle. You know, that's, that's definitely in the Greek there too. But they had to go. They had to go quickly uh, for their safety. And so Jesus, in a sense, became a fugitive king. Yes, from Herod and from those who would try to snuff out his life at an early age. But nonetheless, Jesus became a fugitive king. But yet, this was all a part of God's plan. This is what I want us to focus on this morning, that Jesus as the fugitive king, that this is not just a weird quirk in the Christmas story, that this was done really on purpose, that God's plan would be revealed, be fulfilled. And so as we think about the fugitive king, that as we think that we say that there was no room for him in the end, well, Herod says, there's no room for you in my kingdom in this land. Get out of here. He wanted to end his life. But the thing is this, that the fugitive king, here's the interesting thing about this. The ultimate idea about Herod, I'm using him because that's the predominant person here, the, the, uh, and, uh, the villain in the story, if you will, that really the fugitive king was the one who was supposed to rule and reign, not just on the throne of David, but really rule and reign of the hearts of his people. And so my challenge is in this message is let the fugitive king reign on the throne of your heart. Let the fugitive king reign on the throne of your heart. As we think about that, what are we, what are we talking about? So in Matthew's gospel, Matthew, his audience is primarily to a Jewish audience. And he starts out, we talked about a couple of weeks ago in Matthew 1, the first 17 verses have to do with the genealogy. We preached through the genealogy a couple of weeks ago of Jesus Christ. And again, showing that he is the legitimate, uh, is in the legitimate line of David. He is a legitimate heir uh, to the throne of David. Okay, we see that. That's very, very important. And then we also see here that Matthew uses a phrase that is very important. And he basically is this, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. That phrase Matthew uses several times in his book. And I think it's about eight times altogether. And this is really a predominant theme in the book of Matthew of prophecy being fulfilled. Again, he's writing to a Jewish audience who have been waiting and anticipating that God's plan would be fulfilled in a coming Messiah, a coming deliverer. They were looking forward to that. So, and so Matthew does that. So in Matthew's chapter one and chapter two, he actually mentions this phrase five times. In other words, Matthew is trying to hit a home run out of the park, you know, at the first at bat. That's what's happening here. In Matthew chapter 1, go with me quickly there. It says here, this is just kind of a, a quick review. It says in Matthew 1, 22, talking about the birth of Christ. It says, now this was done, which is, might be fulfilled, which is spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. They should call the Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. So here's one of the first fulfillments. And that was fulfilled of Isaiah 7, 14, of, of a virgin birth that Jesus' birth was very different from all other births. And he is, this, he, is the, he is God with us, Emmanuel. 
The next time that uh, Matthew uses this is in Matthew chapter 2, in verse 5. The scribes and the priests were saying to Herod, and they said unto him, in verse 5, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus is written of the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art now least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. So this is talking about the place where Jesus will be born. Isaiah 7, 14 is how he would be born. And now this is where he would be born and, and really for what purpose as well. And so here's another state saying of prophecy being fulfilled. And now we come here to a couple other parts here in Matthew chapter 2. So a lot is going on here. Let's kind of break it down here. So first of all, in, in verses in Matthew 2, verse 13, we just read that a moment ago, that Joseph in a dream, and by the way, Joseph has four dreams. Um, in Matthew chapter one, and then in chapter two, there's there's actually uh, three times just in this chapter that the angel comes to him in a dream to tell him what God wants him to do. Um, so with that in mind, there's one thing I want to say about the uh, the character of Joseph in this that I think is worth noting, is this, that Joseph, his his character was this, that when God spoke to Joseph, he obeyed. When God spoke to Joseph, he obeyed. I think this is something very important for us as well. When we are presented with the king who was born, the one who would save us from our sins, when God speaks to us through his word, we should obey. Okay? So this is a big theme and a, and a really a big character uh, characteristic that we should have in our own lives. So let's talk here this morning about really the flight of the king, the flight of the king or the fugitive king. Again, the angel said to Joseph, Rise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and be thou there till I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child uh, to destroy them. What was David, or excuse me, what was uh, Joseph's response? When he arose, verse 14, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. He, he obeyed immediately. He, he knew what to do. And so, but the question comes here is this, Egypt, why Egypt? Why did uh why didn't Jesus and uh, Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt of all places? Uh, there's some uh, people who speculate, well, the wise men were just there from the east. Couldn't they go with them? At least they'd have a group of protection maybe with them. But God in his plan, he says, no, I want you to go to Egypt. I do it for a purpose. Egypt became really a place of refuge uh, for the Messiah. But why Egypt? So look at me now in verse 15. And here we have a little bit of a prophecy that was spoken. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken of, of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. And so what Matthew is quoting here is a, a prophecy. It's a, it's a verse from the book of Hosea, chapter 11, in verse 1. And here's the idea that actually it says, Israel I have called out. Okay, um, I think it's worth noting. I tell you what, let's just do this tonight or to, this morning. Go with me to the book of Hosea. I want you to see this. Hosea chapter 11. Hosea is the first of the minor prophets. So after Daniel, you'll have Hosea. Okay, so Hosea 11 verse 1. He says, When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Okay, so... As we think about this, Israel was a child when I loved him and was called my son out of Egypt. So what Hosea is referring to, he's actually not talking about a future prophecy here. He's actually referring to historical what happened. 
What is he talking about? He talks about when Israel, now think back in your, your mind, go back to Egypt where the children of Israel were there. Remember there was Joseph who basically saved his family, brought them to Egypt. They were there for those years. Remember they turned to slavery. They were turned into slaves by Pharaoh. And uh, anyways, God brought Moses, they delivered to take them out of Egypt, the Exodus, okay? Remember that story. And so what God is saying here, in his providence, he brought, in his care, he brought Israel as a child, birthed them out of, so Israel became a nation coming up out of Egypt. In the same way, God is bringing, his plan was to bring, like Israel, he's going to bring Jesus as a son out of Egypt, is the idea. Okay, so as Israel, as a nation came out of Egypt, so would the Son of God come out of Egypt. So there's a parallel. In other words, you're writing to a Jewish audience. For us in Minnesota, this doesn't make much sense. But if you look into the audience of who it's brought to, this makes perfect sense. Okay, so he's brought out of Egypt. Uh, and so as we think about it, back in Matthew 2, it says here that this might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet. So when we talk about prophecy or this fulfillment, this isn't a literal prophecy per se. Let me explain. Although Hosea, remember, Hosea viewed this as a historical exodus. Israel came out of Egypt, okay? We understand that story. It is also, we could say this, it's really an illusion that Matthew is using to present God's province. So sometimes, and Matthew does this actually quite a bit in this chapter, he uses a, a term which is called an illusion, in other words, he's alluding back to his, an historical event to illustrate God's plan and purpose of Christ. An illusion is used sometimes like this. Let me explain it this way. Uh, yesterday, there was a, yeah, you know, a great uh, football game. It was, a, it was like a David and Goliath event. Okay? We understand what that means, right? That you have uh, one team was really strong. The other team was like, like Florida State, who, you know, <laughs> couldn't do anything against Georgia. Okay? So you have something like that. You have a David and Goliath type of battle that's going on. We use these terms quite often. And what is that? That's an illusion. That's an illusion to an historical event. David and Goliath, they were literal people who fought in the Valley of Elah in 1 Samuel 17. We understand that. But we use it today in our language. And you understand exactly what I'm saying when I said, man, that, was, that game yesterday, that was like a David and Goliath event. Okay. So that's kind of what Matthew is doing here as well. Matthew is using these things. He's bringing out a historical event. Remember Hosea, what he said, out of Egypt, I've called my son. That's exactly, just as Israel was taken out of Egypt, even so Jesus, the Messiah, will be taken out of Egypt. And so it's an allusion to that. So with that, here's, here's the explanation on that. Israel's Savior identified with his people's historical suffering and exile, as well as their exodus from slavery. So just as Jesus was, Israel was taken out and given freedom, even so Jesus would come out of Egypt and to bring his people freedom is the idea. So it's giving us a point to that as well. So Egypt was a place of refuge. And according to Matthew, Matthew is saying, hey guys, this is, that, this is what's happening. It's just like, just like, remember, Israel comes out of Egypt, so will the Messiah come out of Egypt, just like that. So that was God's plan in that regard. But now we get into a little bit more. Verse 16 says, Then when Herod, when he saw that he was mocked to the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and was sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time they had diligently inquired of the wise men. 
Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, In Ramah there was a voice heard lamentation and weeping and great mourning, and Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. This is a sad part of the Christmas story. Again, we kind of look over it. Once uh, Jesus had left and Herod figured out he was deceived and tricked by the wise men, man, he took his wrath out on them. And so as we think about this and understand this, and we mentioned last week that Herod the Great, he was, uh, he was a very wicked king. He was a masterful architect, but he was a nut. He had his own family members killed. Uh, he, he was just a very wicked uh, ruler as well. And so whenever he heard of any competition, per se, to his throne, he would do his utmost to take them out. And so what he did is when he found out that there was a king born in Bethlehem, well, I'm going to take out that king. And so it's interesting that there's no other historical evidence. You think of Josephus, for example. Uh, Josephus never mentions this. However, this, what you see here in verse 16, this was definitely the character of Herod the Great. He was an evil man. And when we talk about the children born in, in or children in Bethlehem that were two years and under, scholars estimate that there was maybe, remember, Bethlehem was just a small town, just a couple hundred people at this time. And so it's estimated that there was maybe uh, 20 to 60 children that were killed. That's still too many obviously, but it was not a huge number compared to all the other atrocities that he had did. So nonetheless, Herod's wrath came upon Bethlehem. So Bethlehem became really a place of mourning, a place of mourning. And now Matthew, again, he is sharing here. Uh, this is also, he's giving another illusion, not a prophecy or in, a, in a prophetic sense, like this is what will happen, but another illusion. Look back with me. It says here in verse 17, that which is spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, he talks about Ramah, talks about Rachel weeping for her children, verse 18. And so, what is this talking about? I like how um, Poole in his commentary says this, this prophecy was literally fulfilled when Judah was carried in captivity. So, Jeremiah is writing this in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. You can look at it on your own, write it down. And so Jeremiah 31, this is talking about Rachel weeping over her children in Ramah because at that time, in Jeremiah's time, the children of Israel were being taken into captivity into Babylon, okay? And what was happening in the place of Ramah, Ramah's just a little bit north of Jerusalem. Uh, I've been there myself. That was the hometown of, of Samuel. You can go see Samuel's grave there today. And, uh, but it was at that point, that was kind of like the meeting place of all the exiles, those that were taken into captivity met at Ramah on the north end of Jerusalem, okay? And it was there that we, Rachel, figuratively, not literally because she had died many centuries before that, but nonetheless, she is there as the mother figure of Israel weeping over her children that were being taken in exile because of the sin and the idolatry that was going on at that time. And so it was a very desperate and drastic time so what is happening now is this, that in a same way, in an allusion to that, that Rachel is weeping again, not necessarily in Ramah, but now in Bethlehem, weeping over the children that, um, that were killed. It's interesting as well to point out that Rachel herself, where was she buried? In Bethlehem, right outside of Bethlehem. You can, even today, you can drive there today, uh, and right before you get into his, uh, the the Palestinian Authority is now in control of Bethlehem. But at the checkpoint where you can go into Bethlehem, right outside is Rachel's tomb. And you can go there yourself and, and see that for yourself. So Rachel was, in a sense, weeping over her children. As the mother of Israel, she is weeping. And this is the idea. And so here's an interesting thing. 
we see here that, I love what one commentator says this, when you think of those that were killed, those babies that were killed in Bethlehem, how tragic that would have been for that. But nonetheless, the innocents of Bethlehem are considered the first martyrs of Jesus Christ. They died because of Christ. They are the first martyrs of Christ. That's interesting. But nonetheless, Israel is still weeping. Rachel is still weeping for her children. It's interesting what took place in Israel just the, even the past few months in October 7th uh, when Hamas terrorists came and uh, ravaged many villages, many kibbutzim, uh, many places, and there were children. There were mothers. There were families that were ripped apart. They were killed. They were separated uh, horrifically. I like what Dr. Michael Rydelnik, who's a Jewish believer, he said concerning this, even as Jeremiah described Rachel representing Jewish motherhood, weeping at the death and exile of her sons, so Jewish motherhood once again mourned when Herod murdered her children. And Rachel has continued to lament and has refused to be comforted for her children as they had been murdered by the Crusaders, by Nazis, and by terrorists today, by Hamas today. Sadly, the scripture has a continuing revel, uh, relevance for the centuries of Jewish history. You understand that God, which referred to the Jewish people as the chosen people. Chosen for what? I, I remember when we were uh, doing some humanitarian aid with Project Nehemiah. Uh, of course, we were the directors of it back then. And um, I remember talking to a couple of new immigrants from uh, Ukraine, they were from. And I said, uh, um, we said, well, we believe that the Jewish people are the chosen people. And the lady kind of quirked, comes back at me, what? Chosen for what? Persecution? You know, it's interesting what Jewish people have gone with, just gone through just for being Jewish. Our hearts are heavy at this time of year uh, because of that. We've had uh, family and friends who have lost loved ones in Israel uh, because of the, the battles that have taken place there. And yet Rachel is weeping for her children. The motherhood figure of Israel is still weeping over that. Is there any hope though? Is there any hope? So there is. I want us to go back to that figurehood of, of Rachel. Again, it's an illusion. Think about that. So Rachel, remember, how did she die? She died giving birth to Benjamin, to her son Benjamin. But it's interesting, according to Genesis 35, the account when she gives birth, Benjamin, when uh, she gave birth to her son, she did not call him Benjamin. She called him something else, Benoni. Benoni means son of my sorrow. And she said that as she was dying. Son my sorrow, she went through sorrow. Uh, on a side note, it's interesting that on my mother's side, uh, my grandmother, uh, she was an Abrahamson. And the Abrahamsons, there was Olaf. And Olaf, my great-great-grandfather, he had a brother whose name was Benoni. Interesting. I didn't realize until we had a family reunion some years back. Okay. But nonetheless, Rachel named her son Benoni, son of my sorrow as she was dying. And Rachel has experienced that sorrow even in Jeremiah, even in Matthew 2 at Bethlehem. She, she was experiencing sorrow and her son, her offspring was to be the son of sorrow. Yet we see here the roles of reverse. You got to remember here, we see a graveyard in Bethlehem. But God would also use this for redemption because why? Jacob changed the name of Benoni to what? Benjamin. 
he changed the name to Benjamin, Benjamin, which means what? Son of my right hand. Son of my right hand. What does that mean? For us, son of my right hand, okay? We kind of miss that in American culture. What does that mean? In Hebrew terms, it's, it's a very powerful term. It means this. It's, it's a title of power and restoration. By giving someone your right hand is giving basically a sense of authority and restoration and kingship, if you will. Benjamin would have prominence. Uh, very quickly in your mind, who was the first king of Israel? King Saul, Shaul. Where was he from? The tribe of Benjamin. Interesting that God would have given that. So anyways, we see here that through Jesus Christ as well, that through his time there, yes, there would be a time of, of sorrow, but no need. But also that Jesus Christ in his way, he would also bring power and restoration, the title of king. The fugitive king would finally have a place to rule and reign. He was from the line of David. Okay. So let's quickly go into the next part. And that is the return of the fugitive king. Verses 19. It says, when, but when Herod was dead, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take up the young child's mother, and go in the land of Israel, for they are dead, which sought the young child's life. And he rose and took uh, the young child's mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. So here we have the return of the fugitive king. The fugitive king comes home. Why did he come back? He comes back, God says, go back to Israel. Go back to, I think their plan was to go back to Bethlehem, okay? But he, they didn't, they end up going to Galilee. But he did this, first of all, to, to fulfill his role as the Messiah. But really, I want us to challenge our thinking by saying this. What was Jesus' birth really all about? Why really was Jesus born? When we talk about Christmas time, really what is the purpose of Christmas and the Christmas story? I want, I want us to consider something very interesting. And, and actually, earlier on, Justin read this verse, and I, I'm glad he did this. But what did Jesus say? What were Jesus' words about his own birth? We have several accounts of the gospel writers about the birth of Jesus. What did Jesus himself say? Listen with me, John 18, 37. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus said, Thou sayest I am a king. To this end was I born. For this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. The purpose of Christ is that Jesus would indeed be the king, but those who came to bear witness of the truth. He is truth. He is the way, the truth, and life. The fugitive king is the king of truth, is the idea. Our Lord implies here from this verse that he was born a king and that he was born with a definite purpose. The words are full of proof of the incarnation of the Son of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word is the king, the fugitive king. So my challenge again is this. Let the fugitive king reign on the throne of your heart. But now let's talk about the third aspect. We have the flight of the king, the return of the king, and now the home of the fugitive king. And that's in verse 23. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. The first thing I want to point out here is sometimes when we get to the word Nazarene, some people have thought, well, that means he's a Nazarite, like the Nazarite Bible, like Samson and Samuel, for example, who were Nazarites. Uh, but no, it's not, it's not referring to a Nazarite, it's a Nazarene. And what do we mean by that? It basically means that he's a place, uh, a citizen of Nazareth. So Nazareth is up in the Galilee, up in the northern part of Israel, uh, not far from the Sea of Galilee. 
And so in Nazareth here, it says here that, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be, again, here's the key phrase, fulfill which is spoken by the prophets. But I challenge you this. You can look through the whole page of the Old Testament. Where are you going to find a prophecy or a piece of scripture that says that, that he shall be called a Nazarene? You won't. Again, this is an illusion. This is talking about events. So what, what uh, Matthew is doing, he's actually stringing together a theme of the prophets altogether. Might be fulfilled by the prophets. In other words, this is what the prophets are referring to. So it, ha- it helps here to know a little bit of Hebrew. And so he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth. In Hebrew, we call that town Netzeret, Netzer, Netzer. What does Netzer mean? Netzer is Hebrew for branch or shoot. Okay, means a branch or shoot is the idea. Okay, so as we think about that, what do we mean by that? There's a couple places in the Bible that refers to that. In, uh, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, I'll read it for you. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. It's referring to that. There's also other passages in Jeremiah chapter 23 and 33. Jeremiah refers to a righteous branch that will come up to the throne of David. In Isaiah chapter 53, that blessed passage, we actually did a big study on it last fall or last spring. And in Isaiah chapter 53, the Bible says here that he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. So this is a theme throughout the prophets that there would be a branch, a root, a stem. All these things are, um, are synonyms, basically talking about that same theme and idea of that there is going to come a shoot. So where is that shoot going to be? It's in a place called, I'll give the English translation, Shoot Town, Root Town. I'll give you the, the name you know more by, Nazareth. Nazareth means Shoot Town. So this is where Jesus is going to live. That's where he would identify. I like what uh, one commentator says this. He shall be called a Nazarene in the plan of God the Father, inspired by the God the Spirit, embraced by the God the Son. The Messiah grew up in somewhat despised town. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Indeed, Jesus would become known as Jesus of Nazareth and his followers, the Nazarenes. It's interesting. Jesus spent most of his life and even his ministry in the area of the Galilee. Yes, Nazareth, and eventually goes to Capernaum, the area of the Galilee. And in that, it's interesting to see what happened. Galilee, I like what one commentator says, Galilee gave Messiah a home. In Judea, he was given a cross. In Galilee, he was given a home. In Judea, he was given a cross. You see this, Jesus, the fugitive king, he came unto his own, but his own received him not. You see, at his first coming, the king is rejected. At his second coming, though, the king is accepted. And the fugitive king will return as the victorious king, the king of glory. Again, let the Lord, let the fugitive king reign on the throne of your heart. We can take comfort in this new year that God will accomplish what he desires. According to God's plan, the fugitive king was despised and rejected of men. The king, the fugitive king, was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And the fugitive king would suffer and die upon a cruel, rugged cross. Matthew strategically included these statements in these 
these prophecies, if you will, to show us the details of Christ's birth, his life, his ministry, his death, and the resurrection. And they were all in total harmony with the Old Testament prophets. The identity of the fugitive king is clear. Jesus is explicitly and inseparably tied to the history of his people. Not only with the Jews, but with all believers whose spiritual history and life before salvation involved mourning, exile, and slavery to sin. The fugitive King Jesus is indeed Israel's promised Messiah. That's the point of this. That's what Matthew is trying to get us to see. This is Jesus. He's the fugitive king, folks. But he's doing everything in alignment and cohesion with the, the, the Old Testament prophets have said. Folks, the Bible that we have here, it's divided up in the New and Old Testament, but it's really one book. It's one story that we have here together. This is really important. I, I, I think I've told you this story before. A couple uh, months ago, we were up, up north visiting our Israeli friend, Bracha. We were able to give her a, a Hebrew-English Bible. We gave her a Tanakh, the, the Old Testament, and then also a, uh, a New Testament, the Brit Hadashah. And she, when we gave her the New Testament, she says, oh, this is your Bible. Thank you. That's not our Bible. It's a Jewish book. Think about that. It's written by Jewish authors in a Jewish setting, Jewish customs, and it's a Jewish savior. But praise God, it's, it's a Messiah who came not just to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. Praise God for this truth. Now, as we consider this fugitive king, I pray that we would do as Mary and Joseph did, that we would honor and follow him, the king, and let the fugitive king reign on the throne of your heart. That's the message we have from Matthew 2. Praise God for his word. I do challenge you if you're here today and is there someone other than Jesus on the throne of your heart right now? Are you believing and trusting in something else? Have you come to that place in your life that you have put your faith and trust in Jesus for what he did for you on the cross? That he died for your sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day. Do you know for sure that Jesus is your savior, that he's the king of your heart? What a joyous thing that is. Praise God for his word. Let the fugitive king reign on the throne of your heart.